This is Darren McKee, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 138. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Beckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey son, hey son! Hey. Another episode that we're doing together. Oh, wow. Well, yes, yes. Together, forever. Da, 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 da. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the all singing, all dancing ESP podcast. Oh, yeah. And imagine, us. imagine when all three of us are, are, are really old. Oh, uh, I'm already there, yeah. but... <laughs> I, I am not, I'm yeah. not very old yet. I'm, ne- I'm never going to be old. <laughs> no, you're not? Good for you. <laughs> But I, I hope you didn't mean that you're not going to grow old because you finish your life before that. No, so don't. Oh, no. Okay. Well, okay. depends. <laughs> depends. If, I, if I've got an incurable disease, I'll be going to Switzerland, no problems. Mm. All right. <laughs> okay. And would you, would you care to live on if uh, your mind would still be absolutely clear, yeah. but your body completely gave up? Ooh. Uh, what like trapped in your in your body? Uh, like a something something like a, a Stephen Hawking style. Mm. So, Good question. If I could still communicate, I could consider it. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I've been I've been thinking of that. Yeah, in the last couple of days, it occurred to me several times that I might want to go for that if if that happens. The only thing is that I'm not completely sure that my mind is worth saving that way. Well, that's the question, because of course. I'm I'm no Stephen Hawking, right? So No, no, but the, <laughs> no, but you know, the question is 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 it worth saving for you or is it worth saving for the rest of us? I know even if the rest of us don't care, then maybe it's worth doing it for you. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if I cannot communicate properly, then who cares if I, if it's going is it good uh, who would me? even notice right? if you're still around yeah who would yeah. even notice yeah <laughs> all right okay enough of this silliness bit depressing uh, start on the podcast this week yeah oh yeah 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 pretty <laughs> depressing oh <laughs> uh, this is what the, uh, uh, traveling around the dolomites in italy is uh, does to you probably yeah or leaving it yeah i'm going there for skiing in february whereabouts well, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't my mind—I I can't remember the name of the. Somebody else arranged it for us, but there's a bus trip down to to the Dolomites somewhere, and it's supposed to be good. Ooh. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never gone skiing, but I would really like to try it. So, would you like to um, accept me as a travel companion and uh, teach me teach me how to ski? Yeah, absolutely. As long as you don't try to be the tour guide and invent no, a no, lot I of wouldn't. stories about things I that you don't no. know anything about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, ski- skiing is one thing I cannot do. Uh, I have a terrible sense of balance, so I'll be 
on my arse most of the time. That must have come in, in handy when you went on the bike ride in Scotland. Hey, that went really well. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, it was all physics doing it by itself. Yeah. Yeah. But Maybe you had yeah. these guide wheels. So what do you call that in English? When oh, you... yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it uh, auxiliary when... wheels or something like that? Uh, I think... And here we are, three people whose first language is not English and trying to figure out how to say something in English. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> well, it is to us. I don't know if anybody else enjoys it. but So maybe we should move on. Yeah, yeah, probably. All right. I think we should uh, get something out of the way because we were a bit confused after our last recording and we, to we talked about something that didn't actually make it to the, sh to the uh, uh, final show. That was a moment when we tried to encourage our listeners to vote for the best skeptical activism and as to who gets this year's Occam Awards. But uh, yeah, there was a little bit of a change in the system. So this, this is something that we need to make clear. There is only now two categories, really, uh, for the Occam Awards. People who went to QED in prior years know that there usually were several categories, one of which would be a podcast category, then there'll be a blog category, etc. Uh, and this year there's only two. One of them is the Activist of the Year Award and um, the Rusty Razor, which is whoever's done the worst job in terms of alternative medicine and stuff like that. So but we still encourage people to go and vote. Um, the choice of activists of the year is, is really, the list is fairly large. Um, there's a lot of people doing great work. Um, does it have to be British? Um, does it, it needs to have a, a impact on the UK, UK skeptical yeah. arena, but it can be international if it is still something that's interesting for, for, for UK. And voting uh, ends on the 21st of September, so there's still time. Yeah, there's still time, but uh, please use it wisely and and uh, vote for uh, the best skeptical activist or the one that you consider the best. And there is another change, actually, in the in the Occam Awards uh, 2018. Have you noticed? Mm-hmm, no. That it's not going to be hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman. What? Who's right. been the host of it for a long, long time. Who's hosting it? Who's going to do the chicken? I have no idea, but oh. I'm really hoping that Richard is going to be there, yeah. even if not emceeing the, the event. Yeah. Yeah, emceeing this year will instead be Eli Bosnick, yep. a wonderful, very funny man. He is part of several podcasts. Uh, one is The Skating Atheist. And uh, the, uh, another is uh, Citation Needed and also uh, God Awful Movies. And, you know, I love Richard Wiseman, but I think uh, if somebody can pick up that uh, thing, is it's probably Eli. Yeah, that was my uh, first thought when, when I saw that it, it was going to be Eli. I don't know how familiar you guys are with uh, the show QI. Oh, I love I love show. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. I've show. seen maybe a handful of episodes. Uh, Yelena, we almost got onto a recording together. Ah, uh, yes, I remember. Gosh, that was a few years ago. And I was that fucker who sold a seat, and uh, you went home. Yeah, <laughs> and then we never really kind of reapplied, but we uh, should try again. Yeah, it was really cool, and uh, that was when Sandy Toxwig replaced uh, Stephen Fry, who decided mm. to leave the show after like 13 years or 14 and she she does a really good job at at hosting it completely different a, an absolutely different character but sh s still yeah. amazing yeah i've seen her she's she's great yeah so yeah 
actually, if we can be uh, go off on a tangent a bit, it, there's recently been quite some uh, hullabaloo in the media because she has she has revealed that she gets less than half the pay that Stephen Fry gets. Ooh. And she that she didn't want to say anything about. She's been there for, for since 2015, I believe, and she hasn't yeah. wanted to make. She didn't want to make a big thing of it because it's not about her. She says, but it's uh, uh, it illustrates that uh, women in in comedy do not get uh, paid as much as men. And she's also commented on that women in comedy shows or you know stand up comedy or, or shows like QI. The women get cut out a lot of the time, and they're only shown laughing at the men's jokes. Wow! And that is uh, that is really, I'm I'm sure she's right, and uh, it's you know terrible. And I think it's good that somebody highlights that stupid bloody wow. producers. You know, I I did not read that, and and it's uh, it comes as a pro- surprise to me because I I tend to to watch it whenever i'm in the uk and uh my sister's place who who has tv license and it has never occurred to me it's probably because i'm a fucking man so i'm a privileged fucker in that regard and uh that's probably yeah. the reason why i haven't noticed yeah i think it's wow. yeah but it's wow. good that she she puts attention to this and i hope th- something will come out of it okay me too so, uh, let's talk about what this show is going to be about. Yeah, so, I guess you've fixed the surprise well, yeah. for us here. Uh, yeah, yeah, you should, you should tell yeah. us about it because um, you've actually done it without us. <laughs> Jelena and I, we don't have a clue. Tell us what you've been up to. I, I'm really hoping that uh, you'll find it interesting. Uh, what well, I have as a recording uh, from a meeting with a, a really interesting guy who happens to be a Canadian skeptic by the name Darren McKee. And for those of you who do listen to the Reality Check podcast, uh, the name might sound familiar. And what's more, the voice will sound very, very familiar when you hear it on the interview. Um, So we actually hung out for a while in Budapest couple of days ago wow what what was he doing in in, in there <laughs> i mean uh, you travel to canada all the time so i was expecting you to have met him in toronto or wherever he, he lives yeah that was a bit of a laughing material between us uh during that day that we uh, a half day that we spent together yeah because i've met up with uh, several skeptics in canada uh, in the last couple of years uh and he couldn't make it to any of the shows but we somehow got into interacting on facebook and uh when he was coming to vienna and uh, prague for uh, just traveling for 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 holidays and uh not only for holidays, but he does um, a lot of activities um, connected to effective altruism. I don't know if you have heard of that movement. Not really, but I've heard he, him talk on the reality check a, a lot exactly. about where to put your... If you want to yeah, donate to a charity, I, yeah. I know yeah. that he's very engaged and he has a lot of knowledge of where your money does the best. Uh, good yeah. yeah yeah i have heard a bit of it um on one of the podcasts i listened to and um they they went into a lot of detail and it really made a lot of sense because i yeah. think a lot of people want to help uh, and uh, they think they're helping but actually th- there are more effective ways to do it so it's great mm-hmm. yeah. I think yeah it's a yeah. good movement 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you will hear about that on the show this, oh. this week. <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, because we yeah. discussed that in a little bit of detail. But uh, to cut the long story short, yeah, he um, ended up coming here and uh, he contacted me whether I was I was up for a, a meetup. And I, I was, and I suggested that. Um, it, it was, since Vienna is so close to Budapest, I could come over to Vienna or he could come over to Budapest. Or, and uh, then he decided to come for uh, at least... Ooh, he, he was here for more than two days, of which I could only spend half a day with him. But uh, I enjoyed it immensely, and uh, I showed him around a little bit. And yeah, that's how we decided to sit down and record an interview as well. Great! Looking forward to listening to it. Okay, why don't we start rolling it then? Let's do it. From time to time, we interview people uh, representing different skeptical organizations or projects uh, from either Europe or somewhere around the globe uh, with relevance to Europe. And here with us today, uh, actually here with me, because I'm sitting next uh, in front of him on my own, is Darren McKee uh, of the Reality Check podcast fame. Uh, welcome to Hungary, because we are sitting in Budapest. Welcome to Hungary, Darren. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. What brings you here, first of all? I mean, you don't want me to say the bus, so I'll just say it's generally vacation, seeing some friends in Vienna, and from there as a nice launching pad to see other places like Prague or Bratislava or Budapest. Okay. What, what do you think of our beautiful capital? Oh, it's obviously the best compared to all <laughs> the other ones. Okay. It's a good thing that I'm the one sitting down with you and, and not the other, exactly. other, other country's representatives. Uh, in the skeptic movement, so most of us probably, uh, most of us or most of our listeners probably know you from uh, the Reality Check podcast, which is a very successful podcast. How long has it been going? Ten years. Oh my god! It started in two thousand eight. We've now done about five hundred and thirteen shows, I believe. It's a weekly podcast trying to promote science and critical thinking, myth busting, seeking the truth behind the headline. Each show has about three segments. Mm -hmm. There's about four of us. There were different people at the beginning, and now we're uh, a different four, so to speak. Um, and with each show having three segments, 500 shows, that makes about 1,500 topics. Which How long are, have you been personally involved in this? Since episode eight. So near the beginning. Yeah, quite. So I usually say to people, it makes me more interesting or annoying at dinner parties because you end up knowing all these things or at least remembering enough to go, that's not true. Well, that's not true. That doesn't make sense. That's not true. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you do that? Not usually, because uh, I think a good part of skepticism and critical thinking is to know your audience. And mm -hmm. there's no point alienating people with uh, facts which they may not want to hear. But with closer friends, I can say, I don't believe that's true. And then we can have a discussion about the evidence or thinking behind it. Mm -hmm. Your relevance to European skepticism is that you are traveling around. And the reason why you're traveling here is, as you mentioned, apart from being on holiday, is something that is of great interest to you as of late. Yes, that's true. This would be the uh, philosophy and social movement called effective altruism. Okay. So the people that I know in Vienna are through the effective altruism community. And people who have listened to the Reality Check podcast know that this is a, a topic that's very interesting to me. And it really is um, people who want to help the world but you want to be very rigorous about it. You want to use data and evidence to guide your thinking to have as large an impact as you possibly can. So a lot of people see suffering in the world and they don't necessarily know what to do, or they might want to help, but don't realize that if you just put a bit of thinking or a strategic analysis into how you help, you can have far more of an impact. 
the overall goal is to reduce suffering, but it's just a means of how we might do that. And I mean, I can, I can elaborate a lot more detail, but that's the gist of what effective altruism is. And I, much like there's a skeptical community and a rationality community, there's also an effective altruism community. And a lot of these overlap. I believe, yeah. Some large Venn diagram. And effective altruism was a nice combination of my moral and my intellectual interests. Mm-hmm. So I think skepticism and critical thinking is good. And sometimes it leads to positive outcomes, say if you're dealing with alt-med issues or having people make better life decisions. But some of it is more just intellectual curiosity, that you can improve your thinking, which then may improve people's lives, but it's harder to say. But this is more directly like if you're going to donate to a charity, how do you know which is a good charity to donate to? How do you know it's going to have an impact? What are the most effective charities in the world? And that sort of thing. As opposed to just going with your gut feelings and exactly probably mis- misleading your <laughs> correct. So there's a self. there's a, a website and an organization called GiveWell GiveWell.org, which is a meta charity. So it evaluates the effectiveness of other charities. So sometimes people will say like, oh, well, you can't trust charities. We don't know which ones are effective, or they don't use the money that well, or this or that. And you're like, okay, so what's the next step? Did you do any analysis? Or are you just using that as an excuse to not give to charities? Because, yeah. yes, some of them are terrible and some of them are good, like everything in life. There really is a wide range of, we'll say, effectiveness of almost everything. So at one end, there may be the you know homeopaths without borders charity, which is a terrible idea, or the ukulele preservation society, which, no offense on people who love the ukulele, may not be as important as people who are starving or suffering from malaria or other things. So I do recommend people check out givewell.org if they're interested in that. Uh, but an example I often give, um, just to, as a stepping stone, is in Canada and many places, we have food banks where people donate food, usually physical items of food, to these banks of sorts, where then other people who need food can go get these items for free to help them out with their daily struggles. And a lot of people usually donate like a can of food into uh, a box which is collected at work or maybe a community center or maybe their church. And from there it goes to the food bank and there it's sorted. And then it is presented to people for them to take. Now, that has a lot of transaction costs. It's a lot of you have to go to the store, you get the item, then you bring it somewhere else, then they take it to the food bank. Also, uh, someone at the food bank has to sort what you've given. And actually, people sometimes there throw out food because it's not good enough, it's expired, it's not the right quality. Just because people uh, might need free food in their lives because they're not in a good position doesn't mean they just need junk food. The food bank has a bit of a mandate to have some balance. So there's those two issues. And the third one is that they can often buy food at a cheaper rate than you can because of an economy of scale. So in this sense, it's better to give the food bank money, not food. If you think the food bank is a good cause and you want to support it, you can be much more effective by giving money, which is actually easier for you. But for some people, there is a psychological well, reward, we'll say, of having a physical item in your hand and presenting a physical item to someone else. So then if you're an effective altruist, you'd say, well, okay, money is obviously better. But if for some reason someone wouldn't give money because they need the psychological benefit, then it is better for that person to give an item of food. At least that's the first level. But then there could be a larger question of like, well, is the food bank the best cause? And some people say like, well, don't those people matter? Like, well, actually everyone matters. If you really start ramping up the notion of what a quality is, you picture all, we'll say, approximately 7 billion humans on Earth. Who needs help? Well, a lot of them do. Billions of them do. And how are you going to prioritize what you think is valuable compared to something else? Choices have to be made. And I think it's tempting to think you don't have to make choices, but just how we live 
reveals, this is some economic thinking, revealed preferences, reveals the choices that we value. So like example, you're listening to this particular podcast right now instead of listening to another podcast. I'm traveling in this particular country instead of a different country. You'll have something to eat for dinner instead of something else. No matter what you do, you, you can't do both things at the same time if they're the same thing. So if you donate to a charity, it means you can't donate to another charity at least not that exact monies. Now, if you had infinite money, you could donate to all the charities, all the money, but you don't. So time and money is limited, so you have to think about how to prioritize. And I think one of the key insights of the movement, at least for me, is something called cause neutrality or strategic cause prioritization. Meaning, for me, the main goal is reducing suffering. It's not that, say, cancer is better or worse as a cause than, say, fighting malaria. It's that both those things cause suffering. That's what people care about. It, while it's tempting to think like, no, breast cancer is important because say your mother had breast cancer and she suffered and that's what you think of as a cause. But really you, you care about the suffering, not necessarily the cancer itself. The cancer is the proxy for suffering. So at the moment I spend, uh, what did donate money basically to buy anti-malarial bed nets to try to reduce likelihood of people getting malaria in various countries like mm -hmm. in Africa. And people are like, oh, you really care about malaria? It's like, well, no, I care about reducing suffering. And at this moment, I think that's one of the most effective ways to do it. Mm -hmm. If it turned out there was a different strategy, which was more effective, it could be some of the other ones are just cash transfers to poor people in Kenya, or some people think it's uh, fighting for better animal welfare because the animal agriculture industry is brutal, then that might be more effective. So the goal seems to be, and again, Effective altruism is not one organization. There's no CEO. It's a movement. And much like skepticism, people have difference of opinion, and that's more than fine. It's good for healthy debate. Uh, but the, the general theme seems to be like, let's make the world a better place by reducing suffering. We just have different means of going about it. So with that kind of uh, way, is, is the evidence-based way, if if we're, we're, we're walking through the the actual process of making a decision, right? Yeah. So, and this seems to be the obvious way for a skeptic uh, of the obvious route to go down on. But how come we don't hear much more about effective altruism? When did it start and how, how did it come about? Those are great questions. And uh, one of the reasons is because uh, skeptics are humans also. Okay. <laughs> and uh, all of us, I find, you know, we all have human brains. Uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge to everyone out there. Um, <laughs> human brains with human biases. And we tend to inadvertently localize uh, our skepticism or critical thinking in particular domains. At least mm -hmm. that's my experience. Okay. Say so you have someone who cares a lot about the environment, they know a lot about the evidence, climate change is real and this and that, and they know the impact of various things, but they don't then look at the totality of their life and think about the broader impacts. So it's one thing to say like, oh, we should reduce, reuse, recycle, like, but I'm traveling in a plane, flying to Europe and just, you know, going on vacation. That, that still counts. That still, that yeah. still counts. Uh, and the same thing with everything. In a way, everything has to count. Um, so when I presented some of these ideas to skeptics and critical thinkers, like, that makes a lot of sense. You probably should donate more of your money to charity. And then they don't because they don't want to. <laughs> so that's one reason. Uh, there's a better argument, I think, why we should help people, but we can get into that. As for how recent the movement is, it's almost only 2012, 2013. Now, in a way, the ideas of we should help people, um, you know, who are suffering, that's, you know, that's as old as not time itself, but humanity's had some interest in helping the poor. 
the two main proponents of something like utilitarianism, of course, were John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham back in the late 1800s. And in that sense, there's a foundation for, oh, we should try to think about people and how their welfare is uh, overall and try to make it as good as possible. Uh, as for the, the entire intellectual history of the movement, a lot of it came out of Oxford uh, in that time, and then that mixed with the Bay Area and San Francisco. So you kind of had, and this is a very loose approximation, people who have a background or an interest in global poverty issues in Oxford, and then people coming from the rationality community, mainly computer programmers in the Bay Area, and then them sort of mixing together. So you get a lot of very smart, very capable, well-intentioned young people under the age of 30, let's <laughs> put it mildly. And some of them are driven by very different reasons. From a rationalist point of view, like, okay, it's the right thing to do to help people because my rational beliefs lead me there. And other people might be more emotionally drawn to like, no, there's suffering in the world and this is terrible and we should do something about it. As for why we don't hear about it, I, I don't know. I, I try to talk about it more, right? It does, right? It's the obvious move that why not apply critical thinking to all domains of life? Mm -hmm. And if someone believes in equality, it does kind of at least imply that you should help people who are suffering. And I've learned that most people don't want to say they don't believe in equality. That's <laughs> like so you can't almost say that if you're a, like a progressive individual, like, no, I don't believe in equality. It's not something you can actually say. But on some level, of course, we all act that way because we value our own lives more than others and the lives of our family and friends more than others, which I also think is reasonable to do. But you can also take this larger third-person perspective or from-above perspective where you're like looking at the totality of humanity and thinking, well, wait a minute, I happen to know these people because I happen to be born in this country. And there's no obvious reason why, say, Hungarians have more value than Canadians or Canadians have more value than Hungarians or anyone else in Europe. Now, if you're from the country, of course, you can't help but feel your citizens matter more. But we realize if you were born in a different country, oh, magically those people would have more value? It just makes no sense upon further examination. So then you start to think like, okay, well, if everyone's going to be treated equally, how do we how do we deal with this? How do we... Mm -hmm. Then it doesn't really matter what the nationality is unless it gets to certain logistical or other secondary effects. And basically what effective altruism differs from any other kind of movements that aim to help people and, and, and help reduce suffering in the world is that kind of skeptical attitude that bases everything on data and information, right? Yes, to the extent possible, which sometimes it isn't, but a lot of times it is possible. So there's a lot of good evidence to indicate uh, anti-malarial bed nets do work. Now, some people say, well, they don't work entirely, and some people use them for fishing. Well, they work in 60 to 70 or 80% of cases, which is good enough. Uh, nothing works 100%. Uh, but yes, you're right. It, it, if you can be shown that a certain intervention is not effective, then don't do it. And that's not how the world of politics or some socioeconomic institutions function, because there's political reasons to try to promote certain ideas and honestly the history of international development is almost a history of good intentions where someone from the outside says this will be good for the community and the community's like we didn't want this we don't need this thanks for helping out this is a waste of time and money and yeah a lot of westerners they really do want to help and they want to do something that makes them feel good so partly what this organization is trying to do or movement i should say and this is not a stated goal but i almost i would ideally want to have people's emotions shift such that if there wasn't good evidence, they wouldn't feel good about it. Mm -hmm. Because it's very easy to feel good about something you think helps without worrying if it actually does. But I want us to somehow say like, well, maybe I shouldn't feel good unless I know it actually does something. 
And there are a lot of organizations, unfortunately, that yeah, you can't quite trust them or you could trust them, but there's not enough evidence to indicate you should. It's hard to know right? Mm-hmm. when at the moment there's very reliable things that you can do. But do you base um, your decision as to what to donate your money to uh, on uh, on what the data shows? Or you have your own preferences and within that realm, you try to figure out what the best way of helping is? Right. So there's two ways to look at that. One um, is seems to be like a reasonable approach to solving any problem where you have to put it into chunks. But you also want to make sure you don't inadvertently focus on the wrong chunk. So I think you can do a bit of both. You can look within a category of, say, like whether it's health or animal welfare or like global catastrophic risks. And that's based on your personal preferences. Well, one yes, it could be uh, initially. Probably likely it's based on an individual's initial preference. But it could also be that someone's like, you know, suffering's bad. I'll just read about all this stuff. And then they're inclined to explore a particular domain based mm-hmm. on the evidence that they've been exposed to. And then within it, try to maximize it. So the effective ultras wouldn't typically say, like, education's important to me. I want to focus on education. They might say, like, well, what's the best way to help people? And if it turns out they think education, based on evidence, is the best lever to reduce suffering, then you might explore it more to figure out what's the best type of educational intervention. But until you've explored if there's viable interventions or stuff that can be used, you can't quite know if that domain is the right one to focus on. It's typically you want a, an intervention to have like three main things, like is it tractable? Is it scalable? And can more money be used? Like, it's not enough for an organization to do good work. It's not enough for an organization to do good work and be able to show you that they're doing good work. You also want them to be able to use your money in a good way. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what's the marginal impact of the money you're going to give them? Because it could be that if an organization gets double the budget, they're not suddenly going to be twice as effective. Yeah. It, you know, these things have to be examined in detail. And they are, and by good organizations like GiveWell and other ones. Now, that said, I think practically speaking, some people, uh, through uh, reflective thinking, they think like, okay, well, if current humanity continues to exist, we're probably going to exist far into the future. And that means there's many more generations that will come to exist. We want these generations to have positive experiences. And them existing would be positive. That's another assumption. So there's really billions and billions, possibly trillions of lives at stake in the future. So that means the most important thing is to make sure humanity survives and doesn't somehow destroy itself, either with an asteroid or a pandemic or a volcano or perhaps a super artificial intelligence inadvertently killing us all. So in that sense, these people would say, it's not that global poverty is bad, like sorry, not worth focusing on is what I should say. It's that they think something else is so much more important Mm -hmm. because as much as there may be 900 million people in poverty in some way, shape or form, it could be that, yeah, but there's billions at stake in the future. Right, there's billions at stake in the future. So, uh, personally, I'm I see the the validity of some of the uh, concerns about artificial intelligence. I don't see an obvious way that my contribution would not marginally change that. I'm aware that like there's uh, basically donations are being made, research is being done, things are happening, and then also in the world of animal welfare, I think that's a, a very I think there's a lot of room for growth in that domain, especially if something like clean meat, which is artificial meat or synthetic meat, can take off and have a larger percentage of the market. That will be very useful for reducing suffering. Again, not really current suffering, but it's sort of like fewer animals would come into existence in the future and then they wouldn't suffer those things that no longer exist. That's the other thing. You have to play a lot with the counterfactuals. So it's not just that you're reducing current suffering, but you're reducing the likelihood of suffering coming into existence in some ways. Uh, For me, global poverty... 
uh, this is where you hope you're not just subjected to biases, even though we all are. You're like, well, this is a bit more tangible. The people that uh, are being helped are helped now, which then maybe they'll be able to have a positive impact in the future. That said, everything has consequences. So it could be the more people that exist now, the greater stress that there is on the planet. These people might consume meat, which then has negative impacts for animal suffering. So it's not to say everything doesn't have some cost as well. That said, if you're looking for a visceral appeal, if it was your own family member or your own kid, you wouldn't even think about it. Yeah. You would just help them, hands <laughs> down, hands down. You're like, oh, well, yeah, I like my brother, but he might eat more food if I save his life. Yeah, not usually as the, goes into the calculation. That said, that's a bad argument because I don't want to have just visceral appeal. You want to have some cognitive uh, approach, right? It's sort of like you want your doctor to value your life almost more than anyone else's and try to get you the best treatment. But you also want a public health official that sees the landscape of resources available and makes fair decisions in terms of allocation of resources. So as an effective altruist, you're probably trying to do both. Because you're human, of course, you're going to value your own life and the people around you. But you can also realize, wait a minute, I can take a step back and think, maybe, maybe cancer is really important, but maybe it has a lot of funding. Maybe it has billions of dollars. And maybe this other thing, which causes a lot of suffering, could use more funding. And it's that type of approach where you're not trying to maximize the, you feeling good. You're really trying to maximize the reduction of someone else's suffering. So when it comes to skeptics in general, I like to think that skeptics tend to lean mostly on evidence-based approaches. But we do know that within the movement, it's not necessarily always the case. But what do you suggest, if there are skeptics listening to this podcast, um, what do you suggest them to do? So what is your recommendation in terms of effective altruism or being a good skeptic who doesn't necessarily call themselves effective altruists, but act as one? Right. That's, that's a great, great question. So I think, uh, you know, we learn more and we read more and we get exposed to ideas and sometimes that helps change our beliefs over time. I think the easiest thing would be to check out William McCaskill's book, Doing Good Better. I think it's a fantastic introduction to the main ideas of effective altruism. I highly recommend that. Um, as for other general thoughts, you can think about how you lead your life, what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve. So it's great and fun and like intellectually exciting to explore complicated ideas. But at least for me, it then became to a point, and now what? Okay, so I know a bit more about consciousness or quantum theory or the way in which our cognitive biases mislead our brains or that various paranormal phenomena isn't real. Like, and, but now what? Like, I, I'm lucky, I get to know these things. My life might be improved and I can understand the world better. But for me, yeah, and this maybe is the, the deep personal bias, like I want to somehow give back a bit. So it's now I can like leverage all this critical thinking machinery that I developed over time and apply it to more practical problems of trying to help uh, people in the world. It's interesting about skepticism where there are people, uh, ideally, this is what we do as skeptics and critical thinkers, we're cultivating cognitive humility, that we could be wrong, we could be biased, but we're really actually cultivating it, integrating into our lives, not acting as if we know more than other people. Although we might know more than other people, we also know that we might not, right? At least in a particular domain, and almost everyone has something to teach us. Uh, I guess what I mean is that some skeptics, I think they've actually just lucked into a more correct worldview than some people who are less critically minded but they don't necessarily apply the techniques and tools of skepticism 
in their life as much as we would want them to if they are self-identifying as a critical thinker as a skeptic right it's sort of uh trying to get your own house in order a bit before you then might criticize others there's also a general point like there's no point criticizing people in general because it's not effective (laughs) yeah Uh, well interpersonally it's probably not effective unless you know them really well and they're a good friend and you can say it in a certain way and that sort of thing like there's a there's a strong and a softer effective altruism message like with certain friends i'm just like here's some general ideas uh this is effective altruism there's actually a talk i gave online which also outlines some of these big ideas which we can link to in your show notes okay Uh, well you can also google darren mckee effective altruism but we'll link to it and that links to what i think are some of the core message of effective altruism as well as how i sort of got involved in the first place which was heavily inspired by peter singer's uh, child in the pond thought experiment i just found it very compelling and uh, sort of unarguable good uh, we'll link to that um so how, how did you personally discover this movement well, so the the short answer is a friend in the rationality community said you might want to check out this movement, Effective Altruism, on Facebook, I believe. This was late 2012, early 2013. There was a Facebook group there. I found the discussions very interesting. I had more chats with people online, and I just thought this was absolutely what I wanted. That for me, again, like the critical thinking was great, and I was concerned about the state of the world, but this seemed to just put them both together. The slightly deeper, more contextual story is that probably after learning a decent amount about psychology and evolution, I came to be more of a determinist philosophically. This is generally speaking that I I believe people cannot do otherwise. I believe it's probably in your best interest to try to conceptualize that you can and you can still grow and the things you do matter. I still believe all these things and you can hold people accountable. This is, we don't have to have a free will discussion, but the gist <laughs> is that people don't have a free will that's counter to the causal fabric of the universe. That's incoherent to me. So once you accept that people cannot do otherwise and meaning people who are suffering or poor or disadvantaged are not there because it's quote unquote their fault. And if things were different, I would be that person. I then probably felt more compassionate towards them and I still feel it now. Like, well, it just so happens I have a a life that I do. It just so happens I'm not, say, poor in Somalia or even, I know, actually someone who uh, kills people in Canada. Like, it just so happens I'm not that person. Lucky me, basically. I lucked out in a way that other people have not. So it doesn't mean that you have to help other people, but I think it heavily implies that you kind of got lucky and maybe it's nice to redistribute some of that luck. Um, then the second point is the Peter Singer, uh, child of the pond thought experiment. The gist is you're on your way to work, uh, in some nice clothing and you pass by this pond on your walk and you know, the pond is a few feet deep and typically, uh, no one's around, but on this day you see what looks to be a toddler struggling to swim in the pond and you look around and there seems to be no parents or anything, just this child who seems to be struggling. And you soon realize that if you don't do something, the child will probably drown. And the question posed is, well, given the situation, and there's no time really to take your nice clothing off and your new shoes, do you go into the pond to save the child at the risk of ruining your clothing? And every person I've asked this to says, yes, go in to save the child. And the idea then is like, well, you were trying to save this child who was drowning because you were willing to trade a cost for a perceived benefit, the cost of replacing your clothing or cleaning it at least for the benefit of hopefully saving this child's life. And that's great. That's what I think we want to cultivate as a society. But then you could ask, like, what about the broader children who are drowning? Every year, about six, six and a half million children under the age of five die each year from poverty. It's a staggering number. Now, it used to be worse. It used to be eight million. Then before it was 10 million. But now it's about six, six and a half. 
Which, you know, if you're looking for absolute numbers, World War II was about 8 million people a year. So another way of looking at it is that just from poverty, especially if you include adults, World War II is happening all the time, hmm. right now. And almost everyone thinks World War II was bad. <laughs> but it seems hard to get people to realize that the catastrophic suffering that's currently existing just from extreme poverty alone is comparable to World War II, and it's happening, and we all just accept it as what I call is the background horror of the world. So maybe that's bad. It seems obvious. And maybe we should do something about it because, well, World War II was bad. And that was, it had to be something done. So on that level, these, these lives are important. All that to say is that people who see it's very obvious to save the child don't think it's obvious to donate to charity. And then you can ask why. And I think there's a series of psychological barriers and biases that prevent us from doing so. The child is in front of you. It is visceral. It is obvious when donating, say, money through the internet is none of those things. It does not mean that it's not effective, though. So this is where if you're a skeptic, you can't just rely on your feelings. you got to use your thinking. <laughs> and you're like, well, wait a minute. Just because it feels good, that makes it right? No, that's not what we believe at all. We believe that you have to follow where the logic goes. And mm -hmm. the logic goes like, well, if you said you save the child, why don't you save other children? Well, I, I don't want to. That, that is an answer. It's not a good one. Uh, you can also uh, manipulate so-called this thought experiment. Like people say, well, charities are not as effective. Like, okay, well, what if you had a 10% chance of saving that child? We'll say only 10% of your money actually gets where it's supposed to go, which is not for the good charities, but just for an example. Almost everyone still goes to save the child, right? What if there were three or four people standing by the water not doing anything? Like, well, would you not go in? Now, to be fair, there is sometimes a human logic that maybe there's a reason those people aren't going in, right? There could be something dangerous in there. But let's just assume they're just lazy. Like, why aren't you going in? Like, oh, no reason. We just don't want to. It's safe, right? Then you're like, okay. So this is the addresses the, well, no one else is doing this, which is also relevant. Would it matter if the child was, you know, a boy or a girl? No. If they were of a certain race? No. These are not the things we're supposed to care about because we believe in equality, like we said. So you can sort of play with this variable, like, what would it actually take for you to not go save that child? And I have come up with almost nothing. Like, it always makes sense to go in. It always makes sense to sacrifice. Now, the, the problem there, of course, is then the standard for sacrifice becomes quite high that you should almost always sacrifice to save the child. Like, well, I could save this child and go to dinner or not go to dinner and save two children, right? And eventually you'll probably bottom out at saying, well, I have to do something for myself, otherwise I'm not functional. And this then goes to a sort of a practical matter that if you burn out, <laughs> you're not effective. If you're not doing enough to help yourself and lead some sort of life which you actually enjoy, then it's not gonna work. And to see helping people as an obligation is not as useful a psychological frame as seeing as an opportunity. So that's the other thing that the obligatory frame and the opportunity frame, I think, are something that both. That Is that where we search as well? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's just in, well, that's a good question. I think it's definitely intuitive. Um, but I think at least in my experience, when I've talked to people about this, the obligation can rest heavy while the opportunity seems inspiring. Okay. Like it's, it's more easy to help people now than it ever has been in the history of the world. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing that you can help people you've never met and we'll never meet through, what, five minutes on the internet? Click, 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 click. How easy? Imagine that, like, I'm going to go to Malawi myself. No, that's not, that's not my skill set. I'm not going to drive a food truck in India. I'm not going to carry a gun to drive a food truck, you know, and carry the guard one. So it's, just, it's so much easier. And if you do think the world's a bad place, it does make sense to try to do something about it. Uh, so that thought experiment was very compelling. 
There was even a, a nice uh, version of it by the philosophy bro. I don't know if you've heard of this guy who takes no. popular philosophical concepts and makes them into like vernacular, almost, uh, <laughs> you know, like uh, college joke bro language. And so the idea is like, he's like, hey man, sorry I was late to the party. I got the beer though. Uh, there was this kid, I think he might have drowned, but I'm here on time. And they're like, wait, what did you say? He's like, yeah, there's this kid. I don't know what happened. Might have drowned, but I got the beer. And he's like, wait, wait, what? And he's like, you didn't go in to save the kid? He's like, no, man, but I had the beer. I couldn't drop the beer. <laughs> he's like, you should have done something. He's like, different strokes for different folks, bro. And that illustrates how absurd it would be that we all think it'd be terrible to let a child drown if you had an opportunity to save them. And yet almost none of us think it's bad to not donate to charity, even though children are drowning, at least metaphorically and actually. So that's an interesting problem. Like if you're a skeptic and critical mind person, you're like, well, why is this? There's a huge disconnect from what seems like an obvious decision that we make in one domain and a very non-obvious reason why we don't in the other one. So part of my exploration of this community is trying to figure out why that is and then help explain to other people why I don't think there should be such a disconnect. So before you decide to go donate to charity... Do you do a massive amount of research into that field? That So I've done some research in the sense of reading several books and reading several blogs and reading different research papers. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that there's different places you can trust more than others, just like any sort of skeptical website. Yeah. You're like, oh, you know, it turns out, uh, you know, <laughs> Stephen Novella's blog is trustworthy because he writes it. And he's a good trustworthy person because of his history of being credible and reasonable and so on. So givewell.org as I've mentioned before, is a great place because they started with a similar issue. Like we want to help people. We wanted to find a good charity. And this was back, I think in 2006 or 2007 for them. And they couldn't get good data on what the charities did. They would ask charities. They were two former hedge fund people like, so where's your evidence that you do anything? So the mandate has really been for years and years to try to find good evidence that shows anything actually works. And in that sense, they build up a lot of credibility through their transparency and their initiatives that you're like, oh, this is handy. It's like you can trust someone to a certain extent. You can never trust anyone. But like, okay, Steve Novella has done more work than I am. And he's at least as smart as I am, if not smarter, which is likely the case. So <laughs> if he says it, okay, I'll trust it for the moment, right? And that's all you can do in life. But if you're worried about whether it's really going to work, like, well, then again, like, what are the ratio that you're going to save that kid in the pond? I think it is wise to not contradict myself, but at least counter the point that you really want to make sure you're not doing any harm. And I do think anti-malarial bed nets are probably not doing any harm. Mm -hmm. And probably trying to eat less meat is just a good idea in general. <laughs> and not damaging the environment also seems to be a good idea in general. You never quite know what these things, but these seem like relatively obvious wins. Or, you know, if people are starving to death, how about we don't have them starve to death? Yeah, you know, I mean, it sounds silly to say it, but you're like, yeah, how about people who need basic health care have basic health care treatments? Yeah. Is the seems to be the reasonable way to go. Or any of people like, well, no, if you save all those people, there's too many people on earth then. That could be some argument people might make, which I'm not entirely in agreement with at all. But they're like, okay, then that person should say, I've done all my research and I think birth control is the most effective thing that could be done. Then I should work on reducing population and specifically people who don't want to have kids because I think having a child is leading to too much suffering from a family that doesn't want a child. There's so many ways to go with it. It's just whatever you're pursuing, try to have good reasons and evidence that pursuing it in the first place and then find the best intervention within Great. It's, it sounds really inspiring. 
One more thing, getting back to the podcast before we finish this interview. You mentioned that it has been going on for 10 years, more than 10 years, and it's it's really great. But recently, and not too recently, I think it was two years ago or so, uh, the format changed somewhat of the reality check. So what happened there? So what happened there is that we uh, joined with a development company okay. called Antica, now E1. And at the time, we were trying to get on uh, digital radio, Sirius XM in Canada. And it was really close to happening, but then it didn't, which is unfortunate. <laughs> it was actually pretty embarrassing for us because we announced it on the air because it was that close. And then there was like internal contract dispute type things and management was restructuring as they say uh, yeah so what happened there is that we basically streamlined the show of it it used to be much longer it used to be in the 40 to 50 minute range and now it typically is under 30 minutes yeah and this happened mainly for antica but also pat our intrepid editor of many years it's a lot of work for him and of course if the show's longer it's a lot more work for him to do it and so he's like you know after multiple years of doing this every week <laughs> uh, maybe he doesn't want to show as long and we thought we would try to focus on being a bit more concise and providing the key insights of various topics. That said, once in a while I do miss our longer shows. As you'll notice that sometimes a segment used to be 20 minutes long yeah. or even 25 minutes. And that would be now the entirety of a show, especially some that I've done when it was like, say, summarizing Steven Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature. I remember that was like a 25 minute one. I listened to it recently. I'm like, wow, that was really long. Well, we used to do that. Um, the most recent one that I've done, which had more of my original analysis, was uh, about Jordan Peterson. Because I read his book and I listened to a lot of his lectures and it was part of the popular conversation. So I'll add, here, here's some analysis where this is what I think it does as well. And this is what I think he's having a large problem with. Um, and that was maybe 15 minutes-ish. But yeah, we don't quite do the long format. Once in a while, we will have longer interviews. But we might cut them over two shows. So um, as you might realize, uh, anyone who listens to podcasts, it's a very, very competitive marketplace where now almost Indeed, everything has a podcast and every possible topic probably has multiple podcasts on it. So it's hard to know which are our demographics and it'd be great to somehow survey people say like, what would you exactly want? Do you want a 30 minute show? Do you want a 40 minute show? But it seems like you can't get enough feedback in the right way to really inform the decision to make. Yeah. Yeah. But recently you got several different awards and award nominations. So this is true. Would yes. You, would you like to tell us about that? Oh, sure. That, yeah, that was absolutely delightful. So around the time of our 500th episode, we uh, were nominated and then won uh, Mixed Cloud uh, Best, I guess, Best Science Podcast as a UK streaming service. So we were very honored to have that award. And then that led to uh, a little bit of coverage in City TV, which is a local place in, in well, Local in Toronto, which are our biggest cities, it's still it's still it's still technically local to Toronto. It's the size of some European countries. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. I guess it is like two two point three million in the greater Toronto area is four to five. Uh, so that was really cool. And yeah, five hundredth episode, and then this award, and then we recently were also nominated for uh, another Toronto uh, Now Magazine award, uh, also in that domain. And it's hard to know. Just to be honest about it, right? Like, well, who who says an award matters? Like, we can like who. Someone says you have won an award, you're like, okay, well, what is this, and who are you, and what is it? And like, as long as enough people think it's valuable, then it is. Yeah. And you sometimes measure the strength of award by your competitors, and the fact that the, one of the other nominees was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast, we're like, okay, that's good enough. That, that's good enough. <laughs> you know, yeah. if Freakonomics won one of the previous years, and we beat out Neil deGrasse Tyson, therefore, this, this is great. Sure, why not? We'll take it. 
Anyway, uh, I'd like to congratulate you and the whole team, which is a really great team. Now, now I, now I think I've met you all. Oh, that's great! <laughs> yeah. Independently, like In, one at a time. No, 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 no. But uh, I consider myself very lucky, and it's uh, it's been a delight uh, having you around for for the afternoon, walking around uh, the streets of Budapest, and having this interview. Uh, and tonight we are going on a little bit of a skeptics in the pub. pub. It's yeah. an ad hoc kind of skeptics in the pub. But, uh, yes, so if you're listening to this now, travel back in time and join us at the pub. And please let us know how you traveled back in time. <laughs> yes, that would be more <laughs> important. Good point. Yeah, and thanks so much for having me. It's been absolutely wonderful and a wonderful guide around your lovely city. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well, Darren Mackey, thank you very much again. And hope to see you again at some point. Hope so too. Sometime. Probably in Toronto or <laughs> Ottawa. There you mostly. go. Ottawa. Cool. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed the interview and now you probably know a bit more about effective altruism that you used to. I'm really hoping that it's the case. Yeah. And I, I do really as the reality check as a podcast. It's, it's yeah. very informative. It's not too long. It's around half an hour every week, so uh, I think you can fit it in. And um, I, they've been around for a long time. They're one of the oldies and, well, oh, exactly. go- goodies and oldies. Yeah. Oh, exactly, exactly. Absolutely. But I want, I want to say one more thing about um, the reality check. They have the best music ever. Yeah. Because Pat Roach and Christina Roach, they, they sometimes, occasionally, yeah. make the fantastic parodies of real hits but with skeptical uh, lyrics and stuff and it's so professional because they're both musicians it's 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 really good so you can listen to yeah. it only for that exactly but you know what I, i i forgot to ask him on the interview was uh, why we don't know that much about canadian uh, skeptical activism so they must have a lot of international uh, listeners checkers as they call them but there is not much word on the international scale uh, about Canadian skepticism. And I wanted to ask him that, but uh, that time just flew so fast and and I, I completely forgot. So I'm going to have to ask him again when, when I meet him. Yeah, I think the answer is that Canadians are too polite to promote themselves. That's why. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> but what uh, about us? We are not. No, no, uh, we're not. We? we have no shame at all. So, yes, and um, I will we'll remind our listeners again how they get in, get in touch with us. Um, there are various ways. You can find us on Twitter, and the Twitter handle is espodcast underscore eu. Um, you can email us, and we've got an email address, which is info at theesp.eu. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, send a message there, Or uh, we've got a website as well, which is theesp.eu. Yeah. And on this website, we're very proud that we have this calendar that we maintain all the time. You can see all the skeptical things that are happening in Europe. You just click on the events in Europe page. And if you really like what we are doing, you should go to patreon.com slash theesp and pledge to to uh, support us a little bit with a, a dollar or so per episode. And if you do that, we promise we will get back to you immediately and we will interact with you. We've actually gotten to know a lot of, of uh, our fans uh, personally that way 
And, uh, and then, of course, you can meet us in person at QED in October, which will be great as well. Yes. And before, before we say goodbye, uh, I'd like to mention that there is something in the making, a little bit of a surprise to our listeners, that we are not ready to reveal just yet because it's not 100% sure that it's going to happen. So, um, yeah, stay tuned for... Uh, any announcements in the in the coming weeks mm-hmm. exciting stuff hint hint nudge nudge say no more okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so um stay tuned and since we don't want we are now that we mentioned uh, how cool it is about uh, the reality check that it's not very long i don't want this episode to be very long either uh, <laughs> so we should probably conclude it and i'd like to thank both of you yelena and pontus for joining me this week thank you very much hey. guys thanks a lot pleasure also want to thank our listeners for tuning in and until next week goodbye bye-bye bye-bye This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast.eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe And joining me for the show are my co-hosts Yelena Yelavin Oh, do you want to Me too Oh, not that kind of me too It's <laughs> Oh boy <laughs> Okay Um <laughs> Say something completely natural. <laughs> I, 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 a neutral. Uh, <laughs> natural, something that, neutral. That natural and neutral. Nutritional, yeah. whatever. Nutritional. And uh, the Twitter handle is the ES. Fucking hell. You know, one of these days. Where's our paka paka? Oh, fuck. I've forgotten. Say it now. <laughs> I've already say- stopped recording. Oh, fuck. Fuck. Hey, hang on. Can I, say, can I record paka paka? Fuck a no. Yes, please do. Blah 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 blah. Paka paka.